2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. Are we starting the podcast now? Or? Oh, we've been on the podcast, my brother. <laughs> Yo, welcome to the Death to Life podcast. My name is Richard Young, and today's podcast hits very close to home for me because it is a conversation with Natalie's brother, my brother-in-law, Elias Groft. And there's a lot of heavy stuff in it. I would uh, want to give a warning that it's not for for young ears. Um, there's There's definitely some real stuff in it. And I get probably a little emotional just thinking about uh, my brother and, and everything, the, the journey that he's been on and where he is now. And I just praise God for it. And it's, it's, it's crazy. It's an intense journey. But I just see God's faithfulness just shining through brightly and so i'm i just there's there's so much power in this one it's i think it's i think it's the longest one that we've done so far but that's just because i i think we could have probably talked four more hours it's not four hours but we could have talked that much more because there was so much to unpack and uh, um, so I hope you enjoy it. And and when I say enjoy it, I just, I hope you glean just a huge blessing from his story and uh, how God has grown him, matured him, the way he's doing that for all of us. So um, with all that being said, all aboard, buckle up. I appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Yo, Richard, are you about to do the podcast?
you this was it fall of 2006 was it thanksgiving because i remember going down there and yeah you rolled up in that that camry that had a sunroof and we we went somewhere i think we went to like gallatin or something and you were bump you were bumping i was like whoa now he's rolling with the guy who's and you had you had the what was like what does bumping mean what i don't know you had something you had something playing but you used to have like the cd rack on your visor you know the visor in your car you had like the cd like (laughs) all the records and you were like what do you want to listen to being all like hip and stuff it was kind of funny but yeah that was the first time i ever met you i'm trying to figure out how much older i am than you are i am i'm 37 how old are you 31 so i'm a couple years younger Man, it felt a lot like I was a lot older back then because you had just gra- nah. had just graduated from college. Yeah, and, I was, and you were a sophomore or junior in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah, so yeah, it was quite there was quite a big quite a big difference at that point. Yeah, and I was trying to be the cool. I th- Natalie and I were pretty serious pretty early on, so I thought. And I mean, I was meeting you guys. I was meeting pretty much the whole family. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to, you know, it was, it was a big deal to me. And I remember you guys were really, really cool. And I was like, man, these guys are really cool. And I met your sister, your oldest sister. And I had already known Lily for a few years. Um, What was going on? Uh, what was going on with you at that Yo, point? You came, You're a sophomore, yeah, sophomore junior high in high school. What's going on with you? Yeah, so like that was the point where like my life really had transitioned because I'd grown up in like an Adventist home or whatever, and that's when I started playing soccer like for the public school. I switched over from a private academy and went to a public school. So like it was – so it had been some, summer of 2006 is – yeah, I was pretty established in – my new life because I said see you to the whole Adventist Academy thing and I was going public school route and playing soccer. What was that like? Nah, so I had left. I had yeah, left. Walk, walk me through that, yeah. Yeah, so um, I had gone to a uh, private little school from like second grade all the way through eighth grade. Had some, I don't know, some pretty telling experiences in my life like so i was telling my my actually my family this morning um like it was in seventh grade where really things started to like change for me i brought pot to school because i thought it'd be a good idea and um and i hit it i hit this pot and i I got caught so i get suspended and um i don't know from that point on like i got this like i got branded basically i was a troublemaker and so i went to the academy 
my freshman year, which would have been like 2004, would have been, yeah, freshman year, 2004. And I remember we like, we used to do this handshake thing at the academy, like the first weekend. Yeah. And the principal comes up to me, he's like, hey, uh-huh. you're not going to be any trouble, are you? And I was like, nah, nah. In my mind, I'm like, well, you just asked for it. So like the first year, my freshman year mm-hmm. at school, I was, I don't know. I, I was, it, was, it wasn't the place for me. I barely scraped by with my grades and my mom gave me the option at the end of that year, you know, do you want to just leave and go to the public school? My brother had already gone to the public school. And I was like, yeah, this isn't my place to be. So I left. And it was all to go play soccer. That was what was going on. What was going on? Like, why did you bring, I don't know if you can even go back to this place in your mind. <laughs> Were you smoking weed no, at that point? I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But no, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really smoked anything at that point. Um, I just, I don't know. There was like something about, there's just something about it that spoke like rebellious and like, I don't know, I'd found it. Like, I, I think we had found it in the park the day before. And like my buddy had like, I don't know, I think he ate some that day. Like he like ate some of the marijuana. And I was like, <laughs> I was like is this how we do it? But I don't know, it was just like this, like, I don't know, just wanting to be a rebel, you know, like without a cause absolutely no cause to be rebellious but yeah that was all part of it and getting out of that place was like the first thing i was on my mind after that because i don't know i don't know you you get something like that and you get suspended or you get like pushed away from that main group and you're just like branded like troublemaker this kid's polluting the the environment with my kids and all this other stuff so yeah i was out (laughs) i was out quick after that so you got do you feel like being branded a troublemaker kind of made you a troublemaker or like, were you heading in that direction? No, I always, um, I was always a pretty exuberant kid. I was always really excited and, uh, never really had Mm -hmm. a big direction. I knew that my, uh, at that point, my, my, the biggest value that I had on myself was like that I was an athlete. I could play soccer pretty well. Mm Mm-hmm. Up, ended up getting me places mm-hmm. later on in my life but um yeah i don't know i don't know if troublemaker was like my identity at that point but it definitely gave me something to do that would like ruffle people's feathers and get attention and so that that's kind of what i took on at that point yeah you were i think till i'm gonna label all you guys um <laughs> and this is not cool to do but like you were when I met you guys, the fun brother, like you were fun. You're just like devil may care. You were kind of doing crazy stuff. Uh, your older brother was, I mean, it's in like his job. He's the engineer. He's the, the way he does things like super planned out. Yeah. And, really um, very smart. All of you guys are super smart, but his was like, you can just tell, oh, I, this guy's a smart guy. And you were the fun guy. And then uh, the younger brother was just, he was the kid, the whole family. Yeah. That was like the label that I had for you guys. Um, so you're in public school and you're playing soccer and you're doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, walk me through that whole phase of yes. your life. How was, how was that? Yeah. So I'd left, um, I'd left, like I said, I'd left the Adventist Academy and I'd kind of left that lifestyle behind, um, kind of stopped going to church. And for the first mm-hmm. time in my life, like I saw a group of people who valued 
me for something that I could do. And, you know, retrospectively, mm. it put me into this channel of like, I can do, and therefore it generates value. Um, and for me, it was athletics. Um, it was what, it, what I could do on the field was what I could, I generated friends, I generated attention, you know, even though it was a small town, you know, my name was in the newspaper, like my head just like grew, 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 grew. But like, mm. that was the beginning for me of, a, of something that really put me on like, I can do so therefore I'm valuable. And, um, yeah. A crazy part of that, and I think another part that's worth mentioning is my dad had actually was the one who actually got us into soccer as an attempt to like connect with us as kids after my parents had divorced. Um, and he got us into soccer mm-hmm. and he was our coach when he was young and a couple of things happened and he was like, I'm getting away from all things competition, right? And um, he never came to a single one of my soccer games as uh, when I was in high school. And I, I always understated it, but like it made a huge impact on me. Like, so he had been the one who, like I said, started us in it and was our coach when we were young and like never came to a single one of my games. Um, kind of wrote it off as like, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be like playing because eventually I ended, up, I ended up playing on Sabbath and a bunch of other things that he really didn't approve of. But it was weird. It was one of those things that you're like, you think you're getting all this approval, but I definitely had like what stereotypical like daddy issues when it came to his approval of something that he had started in my life. And that was being a soccer player. And I ended up, so I ended up uh, going to this public school, made all state, got a bunch of awards, was playing really well. Uh, went to a camp my junior year and ended up getting recognized by the university of Memphis Shout out, you have it. Wait, hold on. Wait, go ahead. Were you angry at your dad? Uh, for not showing up to these games? Yeah, probably deep inside. I probably wouldn't admit it because I would probably have been like, I don't care. Like, he can come, he can not come. I'm, I'm the one who's doing it. But uh, yeah, probably deep inside, I, sh- I probably could have admit. I, I admit retrospectively, yeah, I was, I was mad that he wouldn't like, um, he wouldn't affirm what everybody else was affirming me. So like, as a young kid, I was raised in a family, not in a family, but in like a religious setting that like set me as I'm a sinner, like I'm bound to mess up gradually and continually in this life. And it's going to be my responsibility as a Christian one day. I never really made that commitment, but it's going to be my responsibility to overcome this like sinful nature. Like you're going to struggle with it. You're going to continue to struggle with it. And then I got out into the world, I guess, got out to public school and got to play in soccer. And like the same person who the church was telling me I have to overcome and struggle with the rest of my life. The world was like, we love you. You do awesome things for us, you know, patting me on the back for things that otherwise have been deemed like not admirable by this other part of my life. So it makes this like this diam these diametrically opposite things. And I go after the one that gives me the most reward, right? I go after being an athlete, getting the reward for something that mm-hmm. this other side said, you're going to struggle with it forever. It's going to be something that's going to be, it's going to be a weight on your back with the guilt and the shame of, you know, not being good enough. It's going to be there forever. So you're just going to struggle with it. And then this other side was like, well, we like you <laughs> and, and all this stuff actually brought value to this other person. So I really just pursued that. And I said, forget this whole religion thing. 
um, as far as the context of what I've been raised in and just fully pursued Mm. soccer. Like um, it was going to be for me, my grades weren't the best, but I, I knew at the end of my sophomore season, it was going to be the key for me to get to college. Um, It just, it was. Um, And everybody who spoke value into my life at that time, I guess, had affirmed that in me that just to pursue it. So I did, I had a good, decent ACT score, but got picked up uh, by the university of Memphis when I was uh, an, in, an invited walk on. So had a spot on the team, right. But I didn't have an athletic scholarship, um, but it was a div one school. And like I said, my head was like this big when it came to like my athletic abilities and to say that I went div one, that was like, that was it. So yeah, I pursued that wholeheartedly. Like, I, I wish I could like have a counter on how many hours of my life I committed to training, but lots, just tons of tons of my life went into a rubber ball that I chased around on a field. <laughs> so you were a junior or senior when you found out, yeah, I'm headed to Memphis and they, uh, they invited me to walk on. Yeah. It was the summer between my junior and senior year uh, that they invited me to walk on. But I mean like the whole time, up to that and then through my senior year it was all about where's the next party um the friend group whatever i got to do to stay in the friend group i was popular because i could play soccer and cute girls like the guy that could do things on the field and gave them a little notoriety hanging out with me and being on my arm so whatever i guess at that point uh, i was dating a cheerleader and i don't know just I was kind of counting down the days that I could get out of there because I never wanted to stick in Portland, this little town that I lived in. Um, but yeah, I, I, and during this whole time, I remember that Christian things were like, I would just go for the social aspect. There wasn't really anything impactful about them to me. They just kind of, they were there. Um, I'd go to church and people would be like, Hey, I saw you in the newspaper. And I'd be like, cool. And I don't know. I'd, I'd come and go. And it, just, it wasn't really, it wasn't really moving me at all. Um, like I said, I was just, I was going in one direction and that was uh, to be a college athlete. That was huge to me. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I think this is around the time I met you mm-hmm. and all I knew about you was like, I remember looking at the newspaper clippings and I, I, you know, I love sports and I love all that sort of stuff. And I'm looking, I'm like, man, these, these guys, these guys are different. Um, and like I said, you were really fun. I didn't know too much of like the background yet as, mm-hmm. as years yeah. have gone by, you know, I, I learned more and more about how you guys grew up and your lives. Um, so I didn't know very much, mm-hmm. but uh, what what was that first year at Memphis like? Like you got out of this town you grew up in mm-hmm. and you made it to the to the division one soccer. Mm-hmm. What happened, bro? How was that? Yeah, it kicked in the face. I was in over my head. Like, I was, I was a scrub. Like I went from being like top of the, I was, I was, I was all state. 
right? When on my senior, uh, my junior year, I was all state and uh, I go down to Memphis and man, these guys are good. Ball moves faster. The game moves faster. I'm slow for the first time in my life. And I really have to dig in. Like I thought I trained before. Like I thought I was committed to soccer before. Um, but I had to dig in. I like I committed so much of my time and effort at that point because for the first time in my life, something that had been easy, easy pickings for me as far as like affirmation and like uh, excitement was now tough as all get out. Um, so yeah, that first year was was rough, but like I did pretty good at, for a freshman. Played a few games, um, didn't start any, but like my grades were okay too. But like the whole time, so you know, it was it was like this ongoing thing of like, how far can I really push myself on the field? Uh, lack of sleep or just like party after party after party after party. It was this idea of like. I think I'm invincible. Um, and what really is my limitation? So yeah, uh, my grades were decent. I actually made like all conference honor roll or something my first year. And that was awesome because I could go home and be like, Hey mom, look, I have good grades. And then just like oh, sweat off my back. I don't got to worry about nothing. Now I got good grades. I'm honor roll. Woo. So then that allowed me to really just, um, yeah, kind of, just push my, I, and I pushed, I pushed really hard. Um, anybody who knows me personally knows that I'm very goal oriented and I'm very passionate. Um, and I think that's something God has given me since I was a young kid. Um, if you put something in front of me and I, and I find like, it, and, it, and it clicks with me, like I can do it. Like, and I think my family's the same way too. And I, Rich, you know this, like, like we are workers, like we work, like we yeah. put something out in front of us and, uh, you know, it's like the value. It's almost like the creed of my family. Like we don't have a lot of money. We didn't never have, we didn't have a lot of, uh, financial or value as far as that, but we're going to outwork you. Right. And that was like, that's what, that was the chip on my shoulder was, um, I can put in more work because I'm not going to stop. Where did that come from? Where, where, um, where's that value come from? I think it comes from my mom. Um, like, uh, so a couple of things that happened when I was younger. So like rewind, like go, so you you were mentioning, like, you didn't know all yeah. the backstory, but like a few things that happened to us. Um, I'm, I'm the second, uh, youngest of six. You're married to the third youngest of six or the, the fourth youngest of six. Um, there's three girls and then there's three boys. Um, and you're married to my older sister. Yay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but <laughs> like, so my parents got divorced, uh, when I was like eight. And so that left, uh, my mom, single mom and six kids. Um, a couple years later, our house right. burns down and, uh, you know, statistically we shouldn't have make, we shouldn't have made it as a family, right? Statistically, uh, you know, you get a couple kids get pregnant, a couple kids, you know, a kid might end up in jail just because of the lack of like structure. But we were in a great community, man. We were in a community that just wrapped its arm around us. And although my dad wasn't present all the time, uh, for me, the dynamics with my father and my family were really weird because for my little brother and I growing up, like we didn't see that divorce. And like actually he and I through that period, like 
have zero memory of like some of these terrible things that happen, you know, when a man and a woman and their lives get torn apart and some of the things that happen, like we don't have any memories. Like I developed uh, shingles and he developed an ulcer. So there's a lot of stress on us during that time, but like, we don't remember it. Um, but I you, remember you developed shingles because of the stress. Yeah. Of my parents' divorce. Kind of crazy. Yeah. And, and Obi, Obi got like stomach ulcers. Yeah. So like we go through this traumatic oh, experience so as kiddos, but like ne- neither he and I really remember what's going on, but all my other siblings, and this will kind of come up later in like my story, all my other four siblings, like they see the ugliness of divorce. Like they see the ugliness of all the things that happen and it makes a really, in like a really impact, a big impact on them and just the way they kind of navigate through life after that. But like I said, our house burnt down. We just band binded together as a family. Like we lived in the woods for a summer in like these campers while we tried to like pick up the pieces of our life from a house that was burned down. And it just kind of bonded us together. And it and we we picked up this mantra of like we don't have what's gonna give us that step ahead in life, but we know how to work. And we know how to work really hard. Hmm. We know we're willing to sacrifice other things that people might not be willing to sacrifice to accomplish what we need to get done. Um, and I've never, like, I, I don't know. Um, in my family, that was just what we did. And it's, it bled over into like your spiritual life bleeds over into it bled over into my marriage. Um, into just relationships. Like, uh, yeah. When you feel like you're at a disadvantage and that's where you start, there's a lot of things that go on in your mind to get you to a place where you feel like you're on even on even ground with other people, right? So like that, the and chip on your shoulder. Work yeah, work ethic. Let, let me work. So um, where were we at? Yeah, so I'm, I'm back in college. Uh, did good my first year, but then- You know, there's nothing more honorable too. There's nothing more, like this is what even our country, our society, like we look at and we're like- yeah. Work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the most honorable thing that you can have as a value in our society. And so even though there's like tiny deceptions in there that you can't even pick up, uh, even as a spiritual person, like um, I was talking to somebody this week and they listened to the podcast. So they'll, they'll hear this. And they said that they love working hard. They love working hard. (laughs) If they were going to ride a motorcycle, they would probably end up killing themselves. Yeah. But if you give them a bike and they get to ride that bike and work hard to get up that hill, that means something. And they said that their their favorite sculpture used to be this, this sculpture called the self-made man. Mm. And it's, this man who's carving himself out of stone like he's up top like half of him is already out and he's got the chisel and he's carving himself out and he looked at his spiritual life like he was going to make it because of this work ethic and there's the deception that that can only bring self-righteousness that can only bring that like you did it 
Um, I don't know if that's what you were dealing with back then, but that's the deception that, that if we're not careful, I'm not saying hard work isn't good, Mm -mm. but you can see there's a deception in there. Yeah. If we look at it the wrong way, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's this idea that like, um, even though I'm created by God, and I guess I'm just spiritually speaking, like even though I'm created by God, he has given me the ability to prove my value through what he's created and given me. So like um, you'll learn a little bit later on in my story, my story becomes extremely utilitarian of like, I'm, I am me because I'm useful. And even in God's eyes, he's mm. given me these things because I'm of use to him. And it, yo, man, it leaves, leaves me in resentment later on because I feel like I get used. So like, um, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's hard work, um, but, but in the Christian life, we don't work anymore. Um, like I don't even, I, I, I'm employed by somebody, but I don't work. I, it's he, it's him who works in me and he wills, he gives me the mm. will and the, the, the gumption to do. I don't work because if I were to work, then somebody can undervalue what I do. Somebody can fire me from what I do. And I, I don't, I, uh, I've learned that rest in, in my savior is where I, that's me. He works through me mm. day in and day out. And, um, yeah. And then somebody gives me this cool thing called a paycheck. It's kind of fun, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I don't work anymore. And it's this, it's the most freeing thing in the world because yeah, I mean, Think of all the things that come with the stress of a job yeah. and the stress of expectations. Well, well so you, you're, did, did the game <laughs> slow down for you back to Memphis? Did the game end up slowing down for you as, you know, my freshman year, I didn't play any kind of division one sport, but I played at a Bible college where we played basketball and the game was going a hundred miles an hour. First time I checked in. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the year, it's starting to slow down did it end up slowing down for you? And you're at first, you're like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to outwork these guys or I'm going to go back to the drawing board. Um, tell me about that. Yeah. So like, um, it did, it did by the, like in college soccer, we do, we're, we're a fall sport. So we play our false, our fall season. And I got on the field, like maybe a handful of times and, I remember some of the things my coach said to me is like, it's like you're taking three seconds to make every decision or something like that. And I was like, I, it is, it is like it, this thing's just flying in front of me. But the spring semester um, I was falling into, we played like four or five games that semester and I was playing like 60, 70% of those games. So it was, it was coming to me, but that spring semester, I, uh, I got like a D in chemistry. Right. So, I had to Hmm. come back and do summer school so that I'd be eligible the next semester to play. Right. Cause I had to have that credit uh, to be eligible in division one. Yeah. I got to stay in class apparently to play sports in college. Um, So I came back that summer and I had a weight coach who was working with me through the school and I was training with some of my friends or some of my teammates and then some of the players who were going to come onto the team the next year. And again, like I was just working, working my butt off, but I'm only taking one class and I end up, um, I end up living with, uh, a couple guys 
that like, um, yeah, they started introducing me to some pretty hard drugs that before, you know, before it was just Mm -hmm. drink a little bit, smoke a little bit and play soccer and get to school. Um, but that summer I only had one course and it was, it was a summer class, right? They're pretty easy. If you're taking a summer class, mm-hmm. you're going to pass it. You're going to do okay. Um, but before I'd gone back to school, I came back home and I went to this thing called camp meeting, which is like a old fashioned revival. And mm-hmm. I kind of gave one last ditch effort to like, is this Christian thing for me? Um, and I remember sitting mm-hmm. in this like young adult camp meeting thing. And this guy is talking about like, how he wants to be in heaven so he can fly through the clouds and taste them like they're cotton candy. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> no, like, this isn't it. Like, I don't know where I'm going to find this thing, but this isn't it. And so I remember leaving that summer. I remember leaving that summer and just being like, I, like, like this, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I date. I dated a girl that my freshman year, and she was a good influence on me as well. Um, she had come alongside me. She was through this like a uh, campus outreach ministry thing through the school, and like I was flirting around with Christianity still at that point, and was like, you know, it gives me some benefits, right? It's it's morality. It's people being nice to people. I like that. That was good. Um, but mm-hmm. when it started asking like personal commitment from me, I was like, nah, I'm good. Like I remember. Uh, there was this guy, uh, we call it CO, but it was campus outreach through like a Presbyterian church or something there on campus. And like, he would take us out to eat, eat a meal, right? I don't know if you've ever done this, but you take some guys out, eat a meal, and then you slide in a spiritual conversation at the end because that's your job. So he'd always slide in these spiritual <laughs> conversations at the end and he'd like bust out a napkin with his pen and he'd be like, you know, it's like, it's like humanity's on this side and then God's on this side and there's this chasm, there's this gulf in between. But then, and I was like, yeah, the cross, the cross bridges the gap. And he'd kind of look at me like, you know, the story, why wouldn't you commit to a God who made that gap for you? And I was like, eh, like, nah, I'm good. And he, and and Mm -hmm. I, I was, I was like that. That was it. I was like, I knew it. I knew the story, but I was already told like, Christianity is not going to change you. It's just going to give you something else to work toward. Um, hmm. Right. Uh, and at that point, it was actually asking more of me than I wanted to give. So I was like, nah, I'm good. Like, well, let's, let's just hang out. Like, man, it's cool. Like, you did your thing. Let's just hang out because you're a pretty cool mm-hmm. guy. So um, I'd gone back to school that summer and like, man, we got yeah. anything we get our hands on. Um, Uppers, downers, stuff that was mixed with stuff, stuff that we bought off guys off the street, uh, stuff that went in my nose, stuff, yeah, just bad stuff. And um, it was one week into the other, and man, I didn't miss a beat. I was putting on muscle mass. I was getting faster. Um, I was gaining in athletic department for myself, and man, I went into my sophomore year, the beginning of my sophomore year playing the best soccer I'd ever played stronger than I'd ever been faster than I'd ever been and playing more on the team that I'd ever played for. So I was like, I was there athletically, but I couldn't have been more confused about who I was at that point. Um, Hmm. Like 
if you would have, if you would have sat me down and be like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? I'd be like, uh, get out of my face. <laughs> like out of that. I don't even, I don't even like, I don't even want to have any like self introspection. Like I'm literally living moment to moment. Um, going to class when I should, when I can, or when I, you know, when I want to, I guess, and just, just busting my butt, like, and that, that's kind of what that semester looked like. But by the end of my sophomore fall, my grades had gotten to a place where it jeopardized my ability to continue to play. Although my performance on the field was phenomenal at this point, like best I'd ever been playing. Um, my roommate and I, for both separate reasons, got kicked off the soccer team. My grades weren't good enough. And uh, yeah, that that was... This is fall semester. Fall semester, sophomore my year. sophomore year. I, I, he brought me into the, the office and he's like, yeah, um, because your grades are the way they are, uh, we're going to have to let you go off the team. And he was, he was like, I, I'm sorry. Like, like, you're an asset to the team, but you can't cut it. So you're off. And if I haven't conveyed it enough, like I had put everything I had into this, this was, this was my identity, right. In, hmm. in every way, shape or form, it was this idea that I can do and I belong here because I'm willing to work to be here and it gets stripped away from me in a day. And I remember, man, I was, I was broken, like, like I can't went back to my apartment and it just fell in tears. I fell against the door as I walked in the door. Like my, my legs wouldn't hold me up kind of thing. Um, and I was distraught. So like this was the end of November, finish up the semester. Um, I got a few phone calls from people who were trying to encourage me because I real they realized the situation. Uh, my high school coach reached out to me. Um, my mom reached out to me and uh, I couldn't get it back together in time. So I, I, I had done enough deficit to my grades that I couldn't, um, I couldn't pick up the pieces by the end of that fall semester. So I couldn't play. Um, I was off the team and it seemed like there was going to be some grace period for me that if I got it together, I might be able to make it back. But um, yeah, I was off. And uh, I remember coming home that fall and my mom knew it. Like she saw me, she saw her child, um, just, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I looked like, but she, I remember her telling me, she's like, yeah, I, I, and she told me, she's like, I don't want you to go back to school. Um, she saw that it was that whatever was going on there wasn't helping me at all. And, uh, she actually kind of laid it down. She's like, listen, I'm, I'm not gonna financially support you to go back to school. Um, she hadn't been, she hadn't been able to give me a lot, but she was paying for my food and, uh, I was going off loans and everything else. And, um, I went against her advice and I went back, uh, for the spring semester of my soft sophomore year. And, uh, mm -hmm. man, I just remember how dark my life was at that point. Like it was, I'd, I'd hardly went to class. Um, I was living off the hope scholarship <laughs> and uh, some student loans that I'd taken out. And um, I stopped paying my rent on my apartment so that I could continue to like facilitate the lifestyle that I was living, uh, which was drinking as much as I could, 
to kind of numb what was going on and smoking a bunch every day, paying way too much for the weed I was buying. Um, but like just flying through money. And, uh, I got an eviction notice, like fast forward. Uh, I got an eviction notice from my apartment in sometime in April, the everything gets really convoluted here as far as like dates in my memory Mm -hmm. because yeah, uh, for a guy who's like exuberant and full of life as I am, I was probably clinically depressed at this point. Um, considered taking my life a few times just was in a really dark place. Um, I didn't know who I was and if I could find excitement in anything, whether it was a relationship with the chick that who was, who was just as mentally unstable as I was. Um, and we were just in this codependent, like, yeah, it was a terrible relationship, but, um, she would give me what I needed and I gave her what she needed. So that, that, that was, that was nasty there. But like I get this eviction notice and I had to come clean to my roommate. Like, Hey, yeah, man, I haven't, haven't paid rent for the last four months. Uh, yeah. We're probably going to get kicked out. Um, so that came down the tube. Um, you were, were you going to ask something? No, I just remember, I don't know when this was. Oh yeah. The pocket, it, the pocket dials. Remember pocket dials? <laughs> I don't know if it was a pocket dial as much as <laughs> that Natalie got a phone call from you. Yeah. And you explained everything. And yeah, so that's a this little is bit a later vivid on, memory. Yeah. What did this is this memory is I'm in my my old bedroom in Nebraska and Natalie and I have been married for maybe three or four years. And we didn't really know what was going on with you and she got this phone call and she broke down crying i don't think she cried with you on the phone probably but she got off the phone and she's like what is going on and we need to pray for my brother i'm like what what is going on she's like he's not on the team anymore nah, not on the team gone. and i think this was like long but long after all this stuff happened mm-hmm. And so uh, we started praying for you. Um, did you pocket dial her at some party? No, or something? bro. I pocket dialed you. And uh, I remember just pulling out my <laughs> oh, phone. Oh, I don't remember this. I was like, oh, man, I'm on the phone with Richard right now. I'm like in the middle of a club or something. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just cancel that. I don't know. You were like you were like the last contact on my list. And I just caught pocket dialed. And I was like, ah. Oh. I did it like two or three times. I'm surprised you didn't like delete me from your contacts or whatever. <laughs> But I remember just looking at my That's phone like, numerous times. Like it was just like, oh, I'm out. Oh, I re- called Richard again. Whoops. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's so like, funny. Um, yeah. That, that's so what you what, what the, the phone call that I gave to Natalie, uh, that happens in a couple like about a month later from where we were at. Like so one night my buddies and I try this thing called DMT, which is like this. I don't know, hallucinogenic, upper downer drug, all in the same thing. So like we try this drug all together and we think it's a good idea to like pull up a YouTube channel that's going to help us uh, hypnotize ourselves. And um, so we're all, we're all doing this thing and it freaks me out. Like, oh, wow. I used to be this Christian little kid who knew the difference between dark and light. 
And I just heard a voice in my head that's not mine and definitely isn't the Holy Spirit. And like, it freaked me out. So I ended up passing out of that house that night. I don't know, but I wake up in the middle of the night. It's like early February, maybe like somewhere March, February. It was freezing cold. I got a t-shirt on and sweatpants and a pair of Nikes that don't fit me. And I'm like, I'm getting out of this place. Like I've got to leave now. So like middle of the night, I'm just walking down the street. I don't know exactly where I'm going, but I got a good sense of where home, like the direction home is. And I remember walking down the street and like, I just start begging. I was like, God, I don't even know if like you can hear me. I'm like, I don't know if I've crossed the line, but like, if you can make me hate this stuff, like that's my only hope. Like you've got to make me hate this. Cause I could see that, like, I felt like I crossed the line. Like I felt like I had stepped into darkness to a place where I was, I was beyond redemption. I was beyond any hope. Um, and I remember just begging like this frigid kid rocking down the street and I was just like, and I remember just begging God, like, make me hate this. Um, but as chance would have it, uh, I thought for a second that I might be able to like fix the whole didn't pay rent for four months thing. I decided I was going to go get a job. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to go get a job. (laughs) So I'm going to go get a job at Home Depot and Home Depot. My interview goes great. Like I BSed it through the whole thing and I had done some construction when I was younger. So like I'm up in there and they're like, oh yeah, you're going to have to take a drug test. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll pass. I ain't going to pass. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll process your thing and you have a week to take the drug test. And I'm like, all right, cool. Or like a week or two. I don't know how long I was going to have. So I like quit cold turkey. Like, so I stopped smoking. I Anything that didn't come out of a 12-ounce bottle, I just stopped. Cause I was like, I've got like, if I'm going to sustain this life that I've, you know, this, I, I wasn't even a life worth saving, but like, if I'm going to sustain what's going on here, like I got to make some money and I got to make money quick. Uh, so I was like looking for stuff around my apartment to sell. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. Right. So in this time that I'm not smoking weed every day and snorting Coke or anything, like my brain starts clearing up and I really start getting a sense of like, Oh, like this is deeper than I thought it was. Like I'm in real trouble. Like, like I would have just these mood swings and just like, just feel crazy. Like I felt really kind of insane. Um, and one, so I like, I realized this isn't going to happen. Like this isn't like, I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, I actually never even went for the drug test. Uh, because I kind of got clicked in my mind. It's like, you just have to get out of this city. Like just got to, you got to run, like you got to run. So I could call my mom one day and I was like, Hey mom, haven't talked to my poor, my poor mother, man. She must've been praying for me. My brother was praying for me. You guys were praying for me. And, uh, I was like, yeah, mom. Uh, and I kind of came clean to the extent, like I need help. So I'm willing to come clean as far as I can to solicit your help because I need a place to crash basically. Like I need to come home. 
Um, so my mom, in the wisdom that is my mother, she's like, uh, yeah. So before you come home, I'm going to need you to go find this little book called Steps to Christ and, uh, and, and read a little bit of it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can do that. Like, sure. Like, <laughs> I can go read this little, this little book. Like, what's that book going to do to me? Like, I knew I was in trouble. But I thought I still in my mind, I was like, I can I can I can do this. Like I can utilize the resources around me to to to, to rescue myself. So I ended up printing like a PDF off the Internet. And man, I read those first three chapters and you can imagine like like the first one's like about God's love for humanity. And like they mm-hmm. they, they broke me <laughs> like. They hit me hard. Like those three chapters, like, and I, I, I saw love for the first time hmm. in my entire life. I saw love that wow. was genuine and was toward me. And it, it was different than anything I'd ever heard. Um, so like uh, I called my mom one of these nights after I'd read a few chapters and like I now, I now I start really coming clean. Like, mom, I stole money from you. Like, mom, I, mm. I, and I was just telling her all the bad things I had done. I was saying I was sorry. And somewhere in the middle of this conversation, like, I get to the point where I realize that I couldn't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. Mm. Like, I, I known God's voice. He was, you know, that that leading that whether it was through my conscious or whatever it was that I understood as a young kid, but like I, I was 20, 20 years old in this apartment in a shambles of a life. And I like, i confessed to my mom on the phone. It's like, I can't hear God's voice anymore. And hmm. I, I was terrified for my existence and like, I'm bawling yeah. crying and I'm just like, I, I'd come to the end of myself and like in the stillness of the moment, like the chaos of the moment, like I just hear I'm here clear as day. Mm. And man, I had peace, like real peace. And I'm just sitting there and I tell my mom what had just happened. He says, I I was like, he said, I'm here. He said, I'm here. And like, I knew I had a hope. And I think it was over the next few days is when I made that phone call to my, my brothers and sisters. I was like, Hey, you know, things really haven't worked out for me, but I'm going to try to get out of town. Um, I just, just pray for me. Like that was kind of what I I sent out a few calls to those people who were closest, the people who I probably had had in shambles. Like you said, my sister, man, like Elias just called me and he's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. We just got to pray. Like, um, sent out a few mm-hmm. phone calls and, uh, my brother came down, man, my brother, Anthony, he just, he came down with this little Toyota pickup. We taking stuff out of my apartment and like throwing away my little grow house that I had in, in my closet, throwing it in the dumpster and all this other stuff. Um, don't worry. The, the statute of limitations is well past. We're good. Um, <laughs> did you, <laughs> did he, did you ever feel condemned by any of your family members? Or you just felt like, man, they really got me. They're they're they've got my back. Any love that I experienced, I didn't deserve in my mind at that point. 
So anything that I received from anybody, prayers were, you know, encouragement. Like I didn't deserve it. So like I knew I, I knew that it was love. I don't know if you like, I may not have understood the depth of how much I'd hurt them or how much stress I'd put them through. But like anything I was receiving at that point, I was like, I don't deserve any of this. Like you, I was making, I was borderline making deals with Satan and y'all still love me. Like you're willing to like take me in. You're, you're praying for me. Like, yeah. Uh, so like uh, my brother comes and rescues me. I get home. I end up having like scabies cause I'd slept in like some, I'd slept in the wrong bed somewhere. Um, and my mom's like checking my body for scabies. She's like, we got to burn, we got to burn all your clothes. Like you ain't putting, bringing scabies into my house. And like, he finds out, yeah, I had oh, gotten attached to all this other stuff. And, but like my mom's so gracious, like, I don't know. She just, she opened her house to me. Uh, and maybe it's a mother's love and maybe it's, it's something that's unexplainable, but like, she's just like, yeah, come on, you're coming home. And, uh, so like for the next, like, um, for the rest of that spring, I don't, I really don't know when I was that I came home. I just worked at my mom's house cause I felt guilty. Right. I, I was lo- loaded down with guilt. Um, I was, I was breathing mm-hmm. air that I knew I didn't at that point. I, I was convinced I didn't deserve, um, so like I was doing anything for her. Like we were doing house projects. I was doing lawn work. I was helping her upkeep her property. And like, although my motives were probably somewhat twisted and like still looking out for me, that time was super therapeutic for me because mm-hmm. it separated me from all those influences that were trying to destroy me, literally destroy the life that mm-hmm. I had in me. And I had clarity and I was working my butt off, like sweating for Hmm. a good reason. Right. And my brain starts to get clear and clear and clear. And, um, yeah, that's that summer, uh, I was sitting in this little meeting and there's an altar call and I was like, um, yeah, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Like Hmm. no holding back. Like, all to Jesus I Surrender was like the the, the theme song of this this uh, camp meeting uh, that G- GYC was putting on. And mm-hmm. man, I was like, yeah, like he rescued me. He's like, he's restored like my sanity to me and I have peace because of him. And yeah, I was like, of course, like. Oh, you guys, you, I, I get to come down again. Like they get like three or four altar calls in one weekend and I'm going down for like every one of them. I'm like, yeah, like Jesus is awesome. Like you have no idea what I've been through, but he still loves me. And yeah, like I'm in, like I'm in, like I got to the point where like the rest of this, what the world could offer me didn't touch it. Like it, it was an empty, it was an empty well and there was no water there. Hmm. And I, it was clear to me, like, so from that point, like, yeah, it was me and Jesus. I don't know if I really understood what I was getting into. I was very desperate. How was, old were you? How old were you? I was, uh, that was the summer I turned 21. So all the craziness I've done in my life was all underaged. <laughs> <laughs> so the motive was just like. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this? And it was yeah. Jesus, and you were like, okay, he he was there, 
in that room. He said, I'm here. Mm-hmm. He, I'm still loved by him. Yeah. And so you just saw his kindness in that way. Yeah. It was, it was kindness that drew me in. It drew me in enough to see contrast, right? Um, like I was, you know, like the children of Israel, when they got rescued from Pharaoh, like I was, I had been a slave and someone was, was extending to me love, but I was still had the mindset of a slave to, to that. So like, I still had that, I still had the works based, what I do brings me value. All that was still present in my life, but like the contrast to serving myself and Satan was so dark (laughs) compared to the light that I saw in the love of Christ. Um, Hmm. But to kind of give you an illustration of where I was understanding the father's love at that point uh, was something that actually Hmm. my wife told me yesterday that really made sense to me. Um, She was talking about the prodigal son and she said, you know, the prodigal son asked that his dad would die so that he could have the inheritance. And the father extends to the son, the inheritance and forgiveness for anything that the son did with the inheritance. Like in the giving of the inheritance was also forgiveness. And Hmm. I didn't understand that. I I had I, I had no clue of that kind of father's love. I actually admired the mindset of the son when he came back because he was willing to be a servant because he didn't deserve it. I admired that. Like I admired like that mindset of like, I don't deserve to be here, but grace has put me here. But I gotta have the mindset that I'm gonna work because it's extended like God's extended so much toward me. And my value is in my ability to do, right? So that's like the, that's the channel which I lived. Then I, I live here by grace, right? Um, hmm. You know, and that, that was my understanding was that like, I should have the mindset of the boy coming home who says, dad, I've, I've sinned before you and I'm before heaven. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Like I thought that was admirable. Years later, I realized it wasn't at all. And it was this slavery mindset that was still sticking to him that he had picked up while he was in this foreign country. And I I think I've struggled with that for probably like the last like 10 years. Yeah. 10 years of my life, I've, I've so held on to the working mindset. Go ahead. The word forgive is two words. It's It's, mm-hmm. it's broken down and it's backwards, means give for. So Mm. what does our father give for our mistake? Well, he gives righteousness for our Mm. mistake. So when we're forgiven, instead of living with the mistake, in Mm. exchange for that mistake, he gives us righteousness. So the prodigal son comes back and he gets the robe of righteousness, righteousness and he puts yeah. it on i didn't put it on <laughs> go on though. yeah i got, I got no that. you were yeah. you you're still the slave mm-hmm. um but the gospel isn't just you messed up and now you get to work to deserve it even though you didn't deserve mm-hmm. it now you get to work to deserve it 
That is not the gospel. The gospel is you messed up and you have been given righteousness. So put on the robe and be righteous. Yep. But we didn't get that. We didn't. I don't know. I don't know how we missed it. We didn't get that. (laughs) Just went over the head, right? So you're on fire. You're on fire. You've gone up for every single altar call. Um, You that you've gone from from death to life at that point. Yeah, like I, I I feel I I know that I have. What was going on after that? So like, um, how did how did go after that? Yeah. Like the, the weekend that I commit my life to Christ, like the very next week, like I'm involved in jail ministries, like the very next week, like I'm learning how to give people Bible studies, right? So there were this group of guys in the church at that mo- that time who like I admired because they could argue with people and prove to them that the, that the Bible was right. So like I start running hmm. with these guys, uh, and they're, you know, they're teaching me how to do, you know, point by point Bible studies to ask uh, rhetorical questions that put the hearer in a place where they can only accept what the Bible is saying to the question that they've asked um, and learning how to argue people into making decisions based off of things that I, I can convince them in the Bible. Um, and that's that's a cold way of saying it, I think, but that's what I admired. Like those are the points that I admired. Like these people were smart enough and tactful enough and they knew their Bible enough that, and so I get caught up with this group. Um, I'm doing like jail ministries with them. Like I said, uh, we're doing Bible studies with people. And I remember my first Bible study with somebody it went terrible, like absolutely atrocious. Cause I was trying to argue with him. Like I was argue, trying to argue <laughs> with him about, I, I don't even remember. Like it was some like, moot point in revelation. I don't know, but like, um, I admired that. And like a lot of my life was built around, you know, do I have an argument big enough to conquer what's going on with me personally? Um, Hmm. yeah. And can I base that argument around what the Bible says? So a lot of it was like logical proof points. Um, but then at the same time, like I'm living out life. So like I have an exuberance that I hadn't experienced in a long time. I was, you know, in practicality on the outside, like, man, I'm, I'm now able to love people and care for people. And I'm being able to get part of, get, be part of all these things of people helping people. And, um, I get, a all right, what happened first? My brother, Anthony, the engineer, right? He, um, he goes mm-hmm. with. Adventist Frontier Missions for like this two week um, work overseas mission thing. And he builds a bridge. Like, and he comes back, he's got these miracle stories about how the supplies were there. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And he had left this like recruitment video from AFM when he had left. And I was like, yeah, that's a way that I can work. He- missionaries are heroes, right? Like, they're heroes of this Christian, you know, this Christian world. Of course, I'm. I'm capable. Like I, why wouldn't God want me in the mission field? Right? Like I'm young, I'm exuberant. Um, I, I got a lot to give. So like I signed up with AFM and, uh, I'd worked for a few years. I paid off all those debts. Like we'd actually like 
we got evicted from our apartments, whatever. Uh, so all those debts I'd been able to pay off and I was in a good place, at least like I didn't have any financial liabilities. So yeah. So all that God's grace covered, like we were able to get past all that stuff. But, um, uh, the rest of that spring things, I don't know, nothing really worthwhile to mention. Did a lot of fundraising and I was just blown away that people were giving me thousands of dollars to go be a student missionary for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, Went to training for AFM, uh, really good experiences, a um, couple of really uh, like genuine Christians kind of intersected my path that while I was there and um, helped me see God's love toward me in a way that didn't make sense until a few years later. Um, but so I went off as a student missionary, um, ended up staying two years in the Philippines. Uh, I, I served among an indigenous people who, you know, some of them still wore grass skirts. I lived in this little bamboo hut um, in the middle of the jungle. Um, I Sometimes I felt like I was vacationing and the rest of the time it was really hard work. Um, I was a math was teacher. Two years. And yeah, did, I was there for two you, years. How uh, much came back on a, back? Go ahead. How many times did you come back in those two years? One time. What man, this is hard. I don't even remember. I came back. Yeah, so I was a student missionary for two years, and I came back one time for a couple weeks on a furlough. And um, while I was there, a couple real like I learned that Christ could be my consolation in life if I had no other friends. Up until that point, I really had valued myself on my acceptance that other people accepted me. And that was what gave me value, like through friendships or like um, through doing things for other people. But I, I learned while I was there that like I could have no other friends in the whole wide world. But having Jesus, I was perfectly fine. Um. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the first time that I really, like, I, I, I wasn't valuing other people's opinions of me as, as highly, um, as I had previously. Um, but a lot of that, that, that time while I was in this, in the mission field was a lot of like, I was working for God because God needed me to work for him. And I was a really good worker, right? Like, um, I learned the language I, I really think the Holy Spirit like fulfilled the you will speak in tongues. Like I learned the language quick um, and I was speaking the la- there, this native language uh, within about six months and I was able to converse with people. I, I was helping, I was leading people to Christ um, and it was real impactful. Like I was, I was being a missionary, right? I was fulfilling what I thought was like the culmination of usefulness in Christ. Um, until the end of my experience in the mission field. So within the two last months that I was there, a couple real crazy things happened to me. Um, we had had this situation with one of our students in our school and, uh, there was a group of kids who were possessed, um, by all you know, all evidences, you know, things you read in the Bible, you understand this is a battle against the rulers of darkness. And these kids had 
surrendered to darkness and were being tormented. And um, there were nights count like not, not shouldn't say count nights, but there was nights after nights of protecting these kids from like running into walls, jumping into fires, jumping off of the side of these, you know, these that tags, what they were called, but like the, the, the place where people slept and it was open around the outside, but they try to jump off them. You're trying to like protect these kids because they're fleeing from darkness. And um, so that was the first time that I really experienced that. um, And it wore me out. So I was pretty worn out doing this. You're praying constantly. You're singing songs over them. You're claiming promises. You're working Mm. (laughs) really hard. Mm. Um, And you know, it, it changed the situation for some of these kids. Like uh, you're claiming promises and prayers and by God's grace, they come out of it, right? They come out of these dark situations. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to tell too many stories. There's tons of stories from the mission field that were really impactful for me. Um, but for me personally, there was one more, there was two more situations that happened uh, right before I left. There was um, a kid who came to my house who didn't like a decision we had made. Um and he threatened me with a machete, like he was gonna, he was gonna chop me, he was gonna get me, right? And if it wasn't for one of my neighbors who came by, who came by and like held his arm back, like dude was gonna come after me with his his machete. Um, and I was completely defenseless, like I was wrapped up in this little thing called a, called a tajun, basically like a, a a blanket, and I was just wrapped up in my front porch, and we we're just chatting, and then like split second. This guy goes into straight, like, I'm going to dice you up with this machete. And like, I'm shaken, like can't walk, can't, couldn't hike on the trail that night at dark because I was afraid he was going to jump out from behind the tree and get me like deeply shaken. Um, I had to be, um, I had to be like escorted out of the mountains because there was basically a death threat toward me. And, you know, later on we, we got news that this kid had told a bunch of his friends that he was going to like, uh, I don't know, he was going to splay out my organs in the sun and let them dry in the sun and a bunch of other stuff. And I remember the craziness of the situation was that we're all sitting around and somebody tells me this news and Holy Spirit like says, speaks through me. I didn't even believe this, but Holy Spirit speaks through me. He's like, and I just said it. I was like, that kid is not our enemy. And it was so impactful to me that I even heard my own words. Like I was scared of my scared, senseless of this kid who was going to, yeah, I, I felt like he was, he was going to kill me, but he wasn't my enemy. Hmm. Like he was being motivated by darkness and he, that's, that kid's not my enemy. So we, we didn't need to like, I don't know. We were trying, they were suggesting that we pursue a bunch of legal things against him, but I don't even know if we could have done that. Um, so we ended up going back into the mountains after that, the, the career missionaries left, uh, for furlough and left me in charge. I'm pretty shooken. Um, later on I deal with some symptoms that are similar to PTSD. Um, but I, I, I don't experience that until later, but I'm not a hundred percent stable. Um, but I get left in charge as the leading student missionary there for the next two months right? The last two months that I'm going to be, uh, 
in the Philippines. This is the end of my last two years. So um, I hiked across the island uh, to go visit a little outreach post that we had done on the other side of the island, um, like climb up over these 6,000 foot mountains from sea level to sea level, like this 12 hour hike. Um, it was extremely fun. But on the way back, I had contracted malaria. And halfway back, like it's just hitting me really hard. I ended up having malaria a number of times in the mission field, uh, but this was the worst. Um, so I'm, I'm coming back, joints are hurting, I'm exhausted. I barely make it back to where the missionaries are. They started to try to treat me. Um, and into the time that I'm gone, like uh, some Muslim sympathizers are trying to recruit in the area. And are being hostile toward us as missionaries. So we've got, so we take our whole group and just evacuate out of the mountains. I was in a bad place and they're just like, we just need to get you to the hospital. Um, and at the same time, another one of the missionaries had gotten, uh, oh, what did he have? Another tropical illness. But he and I were in the hospital together and I'm on an IV drip 24 seven receiving malarial medicines. And, he was in two beds over from me in this like uh, big ward of people. And one day, like I look over and he's not there. And then the next minute, there's a guy banging on the bathroom door in this ward and blood's coming out from underneath the door. My buddy, this other missionary, had tried to commit suicide because, I don't know, sometime in, somewhere in this illness – Satan had brought back to him like this memories of his past and had just rained on him these ideas that he wasn't forgiven and like dudes trying to kill himself with a pair of scissors in the bathroom. Mercy. And all of these things together are just like beating down on me because I'm the leader, right? Like I'm the leading student missionary. Uh, I'm the one who's left in charge and like things are in shambles. Mercy. Right. Our team, we're all in the lowlands. We're not even close to the mission field that we're supposed to be serving in. Um, we're like completely detached from that. And I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, mean, I don't even really remember like how I was making it through every day. Um, but like we slowly are. And I remember one night like we were sitting down for worship and this girl does a Bible study about um, about Satan and his devices. And I just remember like, that was the last thing I needed to hear at that point. Like I was pretty aware of his devices. <laughs> and I remember just like, I remember just this black cloud, just like surrounding me. I was just in this hammock and like, I couldn't breathe. And like, I'm just surrounded by death and blackness and like emptiness and they're praying over me and I remember them singing songs over me and I ended up coming out of it but like that's the end of my experience as a student missionary and like I said I'd gone to the mission field because I was useful to God right I was useful I was young exuberant I had I had energies I had a smart mind that I'd been gifted through, I don't know, man, I, I went back I, after I came out of college and I started reading my Bible, like my brain was just gifted intelligence that I never had before. And, um, I leave the mission field 100% burnt out. I 
resented, I I started to resent God and become really cynical because I felt like I had been used. Used, I couldn't cut it. I couldn't do what I had gone to the mission field to do. And I was just being pushed aside uh, because I couldn't do, I couldn't utilize grace and the gifts that he had given me enough to be able to do the things in the mission field that he had called me to do. And I was like, well, here's another experience of being used and not being good enough. So I come back from the mission field and yeah, I was dating, I was dating one of the other missionaries who had left the year before. And like, she was like, yeah, let's get serious. Like, let's make commitments to each other. Like, let's pursue this thing. And I'm like, what? Like, I have no frame of reference to being able to like get into a serious relationship because I'm just like, I remember I got a little job after I came back from the mission field. And I remember so many times I was like in this woodworking shop and the walls start closing in on me. Like I get really smothered, can hardly breathe, have to like run outside, take some breaths. I prayed and then I would be able to go on with work. And this would just happen from time to time. But like for the next two years, like maybe a year and a half, maybe about a year and a half. Like I really just resented God. Like I kept on doing the things I knew I should do. I'd go to church. Um, uh, but on the outside, right? So the outside, I put on a pretty good front. I'd go and I'd tell mission stories. I'd tell, you some of the, tell them some of the stories I was telling you. I was put a smile on. But man, it was like, like even even up until last year when I would tell those stories, like I'd be like, Hey babe, I'm going to, I tell my wife like, Hey, I'm going to tell a little bit about my testimony from the mission field. And like, she would know that that morning wasn't going to go good. Like I would just get covered in the shame and the regret, but I knew people were encouraged by mission field stories. Right. But to me, they were like, they were trauma. The, the shame and regret. And so I'd try to, what what was the shame yeah, and ahead. regret? What was the shame and regret for specifically that you were the leader and you the last couple months? What was the main shame and just regret? Just that, like, I I've never esteemed myself as anything less than like a really good team player and like a really like like if we're choosing teams, you bet like it's a smart idea to choose me, right? And like, I felt like that's what God saw in me too. So that when I was chosen to go as a student missionary and I failed, like, I was like, why did you even send me in the first place? Like, I shouldn't have even been there if you knew I couldn't cut it. If you knew I couldn't work, you know, if I, if I couldn't do the things there that you needed me to do, then why would you ever send me? Because now I've come back from the mission field darker than I'd ever really felt and felt like I knew more than I'd ever known. So like knowledge wasn't getting me there, but like I regretted having gone along with it to an extent. Like I remember um, I went to my sister's wedding and I remember we were up in this church and somebody said something and I was just said this snarky comment about God. And I was like, Whoa, like that just came from my mouth. But it 
really showed where I was at. Like I resented God because I thought he had used me. Like, yeah, I don't really know. Does that make sense? Like, That's heavy, man. That's yeah, heavy. no, like, and I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if like other student missionaries who go like feel the same way. Like some, a lot of the student missionaries I've talked to have had negative responses in the mission field. And I, I don't know what the solution is. The solution is understanding our true identity in Christ and getting free. Like that's the solution, right? It's it's not going into these situations as if you're trying to earn something or prove something, but because you have nothing to prove, right? That he's proven you and you are worthy and acceptable in his sight. Like that's the solution. But a bunch of kids come back from the missionary mission field and they're like, <laughs> like, you know, they stood toe to toe with Satan and didn't know who they were. Like, think about that. Like, they stood they stood toe to toe in the ground where they thought Satan owned it, and they didn't know who they were. So, what were the lies then and, that you were believing that that put you in that place? Then, like, oh, yo. So, remember, I told you the story about the guy who tries to commit suicide, right? He comes out of the bathroom. They get him stable. They have him on this bed, and I go over to him and like, "Hey, man, how you doing?" Like, how are you doing? And he said to me, he's like, don't lose, uh, like, um, keep fighting for your faith or something like that. Like, keep, like, don't lose hold of faith. And I didn't realize it, but like, this guy's like, he's not mentally stable, right? And I don't know who's speaking through him, but like that lie, like penetrates me. Like, I feel like it's my responsibility to maintain faith. And I took that on because I look at this guy who had lost faith in a struggle and his advice to me was don't lose your faith. So like in this whole thing, like I feel like it's my job to like sustain faith. Crazy. It's impossible. (laughs) Like you can't do it. It's a gift. Faith is a gift authored and perfected by Jesus, right? That's a lie. It's a lie that I have to work to have faith. Um, let's see. What was another lie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, another thing that came from the mission field, I was introduced to this quote that said, um, the life of Christ's followers will be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories, not seen as such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. Right? So I was introduced to this quote that said, like, although it's not apparent, everything that happens in the Christian life is victory in Christ, right? And this is like straight along the lines of like the gospel, but it came to a mind that was focused on doing it on his own. So like it comes to my mind and I'm like bent on working to earn grace and to prove grace. I shouldn't say earn grace. I'm working to prove grace, right? So like even... I can work really, really hard to prove that grace is a good thing. And when I mess up, don't worry, victory will come in the end. It might not be apparent apparent, and I might not feel it, but it'll come in the end. But I don't, I don't think I'm deserving of it. I don't know. It, it's, it's really twisted because it, all, it had all the right words in it, right? Like, doesn't that have the right words, like the right idea to it? 
but it's like it's so, twisted with this self-sufficiency. I hear what you're saying, and it reminds me of two, two things. I don't know yeah. where we were. It must have been one somebody's wedding or something. And you and I went to Walmart or something together. And before this, I didn't know any of the trauma that you had gone through personally. And I didn't know how it affected you. But we're sitting in the car and we're talking about something. And it became so apparent that you were going to protect yourself at all costs. That you couldn't let walls oh, yeah. down. That you couldn't let walls down because you were going to protect yourself. And then mm. the other thing that comes to mind is that one of the reasons, and probably the main reason, and you tell me if I'm wrong and I'm fine being wrong about this, that you went to the mission field to do all of this stuff is because somewhere, maybe not even deep, is that you still felt that you weren't forgiven for all of this stuff. And to get out of the stuff, this is the way to get out of the stuff and earn my forgiveness. And when the stuff is happening and you're out here earning your forgiveness, it's hitting you like it is not hitting you correctly because your motive to be there while is in your mind a good thing because you've been saved and so this is how you're going to earn your salvation. It's it's hitting you wrong because your motive is wrong. Mm -hmm. And all of yeah. this is so, coming yeah. from marks, like damage that has been done to you in your life and now it's manifesting in bad motives and it's manifesting in i've got to protect myself what do you think yeah so way to illustrate that somewhere in the time that i'm there in the mission field my dad decides he's going to be a missionary too I don't know if you remember this. I, I do remember. But like, yeah. So like, I'm over there proving my manhood to God, right? Like, God, I am what you have created me to be. Like, I'm over there proving it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm over there working real hard to show it off. And I get this phone call. Yo, your dad has pretty much dropped everything in America called us from Hawaii and is coming to the mission field. He's going to come to like serve in the lowlands where you're at. Yeah, that, that was crazy. So, so why, why is it crazy? Why was it crazy? Like everybody, like somebody, like if you were a mission in the mission field and you heard your dad was coming, you'd be like, Oh man, my dad's coming. Like he's going to, you know, he's going to give me that connection to home. It's going to be so exciting. But, I don't know how to say this. Like, spirit speak. Um, Were you mad that he was there? Were you happy he was there? Were you like, why is this dude doing this now? Like, what was your feet? What, what, what did it hit you when you heard he was coming? 
it threw me back to the time where I was succeeding in soccer and he wasn't there, right? I was succeeding in something back then that he didn't approve of, right? And his presence at that time to me wasn't, I was kind of like, yeah, cool. It's not something you want to be part of, but at least be proud of me, right? At least be like, you're doing good, son. But I had become a missionary and that was something my dad valued. Um, and this was my personal perspective. Like, this was this is stuff that I was like projecting on my my father. I don't even know if it's true, but like, I felt like he valued me being a Christian more than he valued me. Um, mm. And I was over there like proving that I was a man, and he was going to interrupt it, and that his presence somehow was going to take away my opportunity to prove myself. Hmm. And he was coming over there. And I remember like spirit spoke to me this evening that that night, because I'm sitting there and I just got in the phone call that day that everybody else was like, what's going on. I'm like, I'm going to do my best to figure out when he gets here, what's going on. Um, All my brothers and sisters had messaged me, but like we're, we're singing um, day by day. I don't know if you've ever heard this hymn, but it's like day by day. And with each passing moment, and it talks about the father to child relationship. And like, I was convicted in that moment that I had done a lot of this to prove something to my dad. Oh, wow. You know, somewhere in the middle of my confusion, I had done a lot of this going to be a missionary, going to, you know, be religious and be a good arguer and be a good Christian so that I could earn something from my dad. But the moment that I received, I was going to receive any affirmation. I was resistant because it was nullifying my ability to do it on my own. You kind of, you get what I'm getting at? I don't know if I really said that clear. No, what what I'm hearing is I'm out here trying to do this thing to show that I'm this thing. And there's a mixed bag of resentfulness because, oh, now you're showing up when, when I'm doing this and you didn't show up then. And how am I going to prove it if you're here? Yeah. And he came. I welcomed him with open arms. Uh, his support was appreciated. We, we got to have some real cool father-son. But like on that night, God convicted me. He's like, you're not proving anything to your dad. He showed his fatherly love toward me. I don't really know the depth of what it was, but I realized that I didn't need to prove anything to my dad. Hmm. I was I, I was set free from some of the insecurities that I was hearing from my family about his presence coming, him coming to see me, like him just dropping everything in America and potentially putting himself at risk. And not valuing valuing his family's opinion and all that, like I got set free from that that night. I was mm. no longer proving anything to my dad, and that allowed me to welcome him with open arms, um, understanding that he was probably in the same boat I was—just a Christian looking to do Christian things, right? Like that's <laughs> that's how I received it. But like I saw, I could see my dad's humanity at that point. 
attached, detached from having to prove anything. Um, and I think in that moment, it was, it was definitely spirit that allowed me to, to know that that's, that I was free from his expectations, uh, free from proving anything to him. Um, and then I could just treat him like a brother in Christ. Um, and that was one of the most impactful things for me there, but that's, was kind of the baggage that I was carrying there. Like this chip on my shoulder, I got to prove myself resentment. Um, and when it, when it had an object to direct it toward, toward my dad, it came to the surface and, um, yeah, praise the Lord. Like at that moment, like I was like, yeah, my daddy is, is my heavenly father. Not, 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 uh, not Stephen Groft. It was, it was freeing. Um, but no, so I don't know home. where we're at. I don't know where we're at no, in the story. We're uh, home. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. doing the PTSD thing when you're working. You still have a yeah, 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 low yeah. key resentfulness towards God for taking you out there. Um, what, you uh you end up getting married i don't know how how well, long between you yeah. getting back and then let's, you getting transition married to that. yeah yeah let's transition to that so like um on top of coming back like i told you i'd been dating that girl and like i was unfit to be in a committed relationship i was just an emotional mess really confused about who i was and i wasn't about to pull somebody else into that Mm -hmm. So the relationship that I have with uh, this young lady that we had met in the mission field and I'd come back and we'd pursue this relationship, um, it fizzled, um, kind of ended hard. And uh, over the next like six to eight months, I was like, relationships and me, like, let's, let's just not like, <laughs> like, let's just not pursue anything. Um, I, and I I made it was a pretty it was a pretty intentional decision because I didn't know I didn't want to I couldn't commit to somebody at that point because I was still sorting through what had happened to me. So um uh fast forward it's kind of cool it's kind of crazy like the like camp meeting is oftentimes for me like a like a like a transition. So camp meeting again the next year there's this girl and I'm like, "Hey, what's up?" I'm like, "Whoa, like you and me like we we vibe pretty cool." And we hung out a couple of times, but then I realized I was like, oh, like I've healed a lot. And at camp meeting that year, there's this guy that I'd really realized how much I had healed when, so he was going through Daniel and he came to this point in Daniel. Um, and again, I get clicked, I get tipped off by logical things like, Bible knowledge, like this always usually like a tipping point. And then God's always like, I love you though. And that's why I'm telling you this. Um, but like he comes to this point in revelation or not in revelation, but in Daniel and he's like, and, and judgment was made in favor of the saints. And like, this is the first time I'd ever heard that. Like judgment was made in favor of me, like not against me. Like I wasn't that some somewhere before the second coming judgment was made in favor of me. And then I was, I don't know if I'd taken on the mentality of like, I'm a saint, but like, um, yeah, like, and I, and I realized in receiving that knowledge that I was like, man, I, 
I'm not as broken as I was a year ago at this point. Uh, I'm not as like, like terribly confused about who I am anymore. Like, wow. And, and it was just kind of a, a moment for me that, that relation, my relationship with Christ, um, he was kind of wooing me back. Although I had had some really twisted views of what had happened in the mission field, he was, he was healing me. He was bringing me back to himself in a way that I didn't understand. Um, but like, so I'd had, so that, that camp meeting, there was this girl and we were kind of talking and I was like, wait, wait, pause, like time out, time out. Like if, uh, if I'm getting back into the dating game and it's not going to be a game this time, like, uh, there's one girl who needs to know that before anybody else, um, has a chance to, uh, interact with me. And that was Gabby. Um, over the, the year previous to that, we had just been in a common friend group. We'd hung out a lot. Um, I'd become really good friends with her older brother. Uh, Gabby is now my wife, but like I'd, I'd been chatting with this other girl and I realized I was like, hold the horses. If I'm available, she needs to know. Like, I didn't know why, but like she needed to know. So over the next couple of years, like, yeah, I mean, our story's an awesome one, um, and it just gets get better. It gets better by the day, man. Like my marriage is awesome, like amazing. <laughs> it hasn't always been that way. So, <laughs> but it seems like the, the ride up to yeah, to the wedding. It seems like the ride up to the wedding. Um, from the outside looking in, you'd come back you had this, these issues, you're healed. You and her are, you know, you're together and it just it seems like things are going super well and you're kind of comfortable in your own skin again and you're comfortable with who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I off about that? And you mm-hmm. guys got married? Yeah. Like, yeah, pretty much writing up until the marriage. Uh, like we, we went, when we like, like all dating couples, I guess we, we had some times where we were like, oh, did we just cross a line? Like sexually, we'd never crossed the line before marriage that I wasn't comfortable with. I felt like those things from my past, um, I didn't really mention it because I don't know if it really is worth mentioning, but like, you know, I'd, I had given myself away sexually so many times that it wasn't even funny. And not just like one night stand kind of things, but like submitted my heart to another person and leverage sexual gain from somebody else um, going all the way back to like when I was in high school. So mm-hmm. like I had made a habit of it up until when Christ rescued me. And actually even after Christ had rescued me in college, I still met up with a girl from down in Memphis just because I was still confused. Um, mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. I, there was, there, I, there was some deep like relational on top of getting affirmation for what I could do, there was some relational things that I still hadn't really sorted through, but I knew that Christ didn't see me in those ways. And so that in my marriage, I was giving myself as purity from him to my wife. I had no problem with that. Right. Um, I knew that there was that purity had been gifted me from Christ and that's what I was going to my marriage. So I didn't feel like I was, I was carrying the baggage from my past in that aspect. Um, 
So like we do this premarital counseling, we get introduced to this thing called the five love languages. And I'm not harping on the guy who wrote the book. Dude, that guy has, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of his stuff, but he has helped a lot of marriages. Um, and we we bought into it like wholeheartedly, five love languages, like found out that my love language was affirmation and physical touch and that hers was like quality time and acts of service. And then we enter into what I learned to be later, like this contractual exchange of you love me so that I'll feel loved and that I can love you through the things you're doing for me. Hmm. Um, it's, it's not how it comes out, but that's how it worked out in our relationship. Maybe we're unique, but I don't know if we are right. Um, maybe the baggage that her and I brought into our marriage was the perfect storm for it to work out that way. But it became, it became an exchange an appeasement, if you would, that I can do for you so that you will love me. Um, and that's what it really worked out with. But we didn't see that at first. We saw it as a really good practical way to be able to initiate conversations, to be able to bring these two life experiences together and marriage. And she had her life experience with their family and her expectations of what a family looked like. And I had mine. And together we were going to be able to put this thing together. And because we knew each other's love language, we could keep each other's love tank full so that we could have a happy home. Right. Yeah, I, I, um, I think so. A lot of our uh, marriage. I think that's how we see it, but we don't say it. Um, but that's how. In, nah, now in we would have theory, In theory, it, it it's it doesn't look like that. And I'm sure the guy who wrote the book and he's made a lot of money off that book. I'm sure he would never say, "Oh, well, that's how it goes." But in practice, that's how it goes. And with the double-mindedness. Yeah. with double mindedness that's how it goes so i i don't want to the same as you yeah. i don't we don't want to throw them under the bus but the theory and the practice are it seems like it's two different things when it comes to that book or the love and respect book or whatever um the stuff that people read and it just positions them not to really love not not to you do, yeah. you're like you're keeping a little bit of record there or someone has to you're loved this way and it and it kind of makes you a little self-centered like i'm loved this way and like i said that's the theory that's not the theory but it turns out being the practice so it um, puts the expectation on your spouse like, so how, how did that work out for me and Gabby, right? Um, as far as, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you how it worked out for us. So like my, my love language was words of affirmation, right? So like, what's the worst thing Gab could do to me was make fun of me in public, right? Like really throw a hard zinger in there and just... <laughs> make my face turn red in front of people I respected. That's the worst. Like, and she knew that, right? She knew that because we had, we had explained this to each other. We had taken the survey, right? She knew the one way to hurt me is to do this. But like you said, you're coming. I came into this double-minded with a convoluted way of receiving that. So like, Hey, it happens, right? Gabby 
we're just joking around. She's a she's a hilarious person, although she's an introvert. And man, she can find the funniness in a situation, and like she'll whisper it to somebody, right? And she, she drops bombs. But so like it happens, right? Gabby makes fun of me in in public, mm-hmm. um, and I'm like, <gasps> "You've betrayed the agreement," right? Silent. I shut down. No talking from me, like. If we're in a group of friends, like I might be cordial to her the rest of the night, but there, I know in my mind, I'm going to bring her back to that moment and make sure she knows that I was hurt. Right. So Gabby realized Gabby's very insightful, right? She sees that, oh, the thing that I wasn't supposed to do, I did. And I've, I've, I've insulted him in public unintentionally. We were joking around and, I didn't trust my wife's heart Hmm. that she had my best interest in mind at that point. I didn't. And it shows because like we get into the conversation later and I'm like, Hey, um, and she, but she probably would have been the one to initiate it because she had her own and she could probably tell you more about it too, but she had her own, like felt responsible for my happiness, Hmm. took personal deep responsibility my happiness so like she'd come to me and she would try to say affirming things to nullify the incident the accident words that came out before right and i would receive them as and i would call her out and be like that's cheap praise Hmm. that's what you're supposed that's what you're supposed to say right that's not genuine when from her heart, it a hundred percent it was. She realized that she in, in in her heart she was probably genuinely loving me, seeing seeing that I was hurt or offended or whatever, and she was trying to love me. Hmm. But I was like, that's cheap praise. So I shut. I would shut her down, and then anything that would come my way, I've gotten really self centered, whatever. And that's how that like that worked out time and time and time again. And then on the physical end, man. If we weren't being intimate, then like, I remember, I don't know, like, you, you know, that, that phrase, you know, don't go to bed angry, right. but they don't tell you that arguments start at like 11 o'clock. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> you're like, Oh, like, Oh, we just laid down. <sighs> oh wait, I'm not satisfied. And then like, <clears throat> and yeah, man, I like, I remember there were times where I like, I was like, I'm just going to go for a run. Like, like you don't understand it. You don't get it. We've had this conversation a thousand times. I got sexual needs and you're not satisfying them. I'm just going to go for a run. Like we, we, we agreed with this. Like the, earlier that night, I would even say like, I washed the dishes. Like I did all these acts of service. Like I would almost, I don't know if I really admit it, but I would be like, yeah, I did the things I was supposed to do. To get now that. it's time for intimacy. Yeah, like we, this is it. And whether I would admit it out, out loud or not, like that's how we existed a lot, often for a while. And you can only do that so long, right? Oh, it's like, just baggage. Like it's old. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it is. And every time, like, you know, I'm learning now that like, the more we submit to a lie, 
the easier it is that we get tripped up on that lie. And I'm not saying to us, because we, we see them now. We were blessed. We have the Holy Spirit who shows us lies and speaks truth. Right. But until I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking, the the times I submitted to that lie and held on to um, my rights, or I am I have the right to be, I have the right, the right. The more I held on to those rights, the deeper the lie took root, and the easier it was for that lie to sound like truth and cue me up to hold on to rights of. What I've learned is a dead guy. <laughs> Mercy. And yo, know, it and it and it just it would cycle up. So like that's kind of how we that's how we existed for a while. And we were on the outside, like you wouldn't tell anybody that. Like you wouldn't tell anybody, yeah, like we're both unsatisfied good amount of the time, but the times we, you know, the times where it clicks, it's good. And I'd written that off like you know, Gabby, during school year, I'd like their school year, my wife during the school year, she's a teacher. And I'd be like, she gets stressed out those nine months. I'm like, I don't kind of, I just, I do my thing. Like I get what I, I'll take what I get. And then the summer, like, ah, like I get my wife back. Um, mm-hmm. And so we lived that for a while. Um, no, I, had, I had no idea. Said, yeah, yeah, I had no idea. It just seems like uh, from the outside because we don't live in the same state you guys were just like your wedding was awesome there was just so much it it all seemed like if you guys were putting up the smoke and mirrors uh it was effective i had no idea that anything like that was going on or that you guys were and because you were on fire for the lord she's you know god-fearing woman Yo, neither did we we didn't understand that that was going on either we thought that that was how it was supposed to be. Mercy. Right? Like, so you're right. Like, but we just thought like, this is what marriage is going to be. We're in it. Like the good times are good. Like they were good. Like there were times where her and I, we have so much in common. Like we, we love our, our hobbies, like tip for tat. We're huge outdoor people. We would go backpacking. We'd go rock climbing, do all these things together. And like, those times were good. I'm just telling you about the realistic behind the scenes that nobody saw mm-hmm. that really knocked out the good times because they put a twist on the good times, right? Hmm. They put, they, there was still that twist. Um, and I'm not saying that it was all bad. Satan didn't rule on our marriage. He had footholds, but he didn't rule. Cause I mean, we, we were, we were in Christ. Mm-hmm. Did we understand? And it no, but like Jesus still ruled our home. Mm-hmm. Like we still were walking in grace. Like there was like there was love in our home, but there were strongholds, and there were some yeah. lies. Uh, yeah. Like up until this spring, um, we had a baby. Oh, little Gunnison, our love <laughs> produced another human life. <laughs> Uh, little Gunnison like comes into our world this January and man, he rocks our world. Like he is awesome. But at the same time, he taking care of him brings to surface a lot of this mercy. Like we now, 
we now are taking care of like they sent us home with a baby what and now we need to be a functional unit to take care of another life and a lot of this stuff starts coming to the surface um not not in a way that we can deal with it but in a way that we're just struggling with it right um because we are struggling to keep this baby alive right we're (laughs) sleepless nights from time to time we're we're doing our thing but we just think like this is what we got to do like having children is a blessing from the lord right like we're doing the thing we got to do um yo and then covid hits and i'll lose my job yeah um yeah how'd you do i get this phone call so i get this phone call and i was i was good but i wasn't I, I was still working. Right. Uh, and by mean, I mean, working, I mean, like I was still proving myself. Hmm. I was still taking on myself the need to generate a facade at best of an existence that was doing good, doing good. Right. So went back to school, got a job as a PTA and was doing good. Mm-hmm. I was providing for my family. I was doing good, right? Mm-hmm. I was keeping my wife happy. We had food on the table. I was teaching Sabbath school. I was a good Christian. I was, you know, I was a respectable person in my community. I was doing good. And then I lose my job. And this is the second time I'd lost a job. So I got experience with it, right? Um, and my wife's 100% supportive. But I feel like a little pip squeak like i'm like uh oh you did good but you don't have a job anymore oh and you just bought a house like last september like <laughs> right no you didn't buy a house the the bank's allowing you to live in their house and you, you're giving them money but you can't give them money anymore because you don't have a job you have a baby now that you have to support and the walls start getting tied around me. Hmm. Um, and then I get this phone call from this person who's like, what's your relationship to sin? <laughs> or, yo, Elias, do you, did you know that your employer isn't your provider? And start speaking truth into my life that I was ripe to receive, Hmm. right? God had, God for the last 10 years has been proving to me relentlessly that he loves me. He cares for me. He has sustained my every breath. And then somebody tells me that he loves me. And in the face of losing my job, Richard gets on the phone and my Richard and Natalie get on the phone with me. I don't really know what you guys said, but it was along the lines of like, your employer is not your provider. And it was what I had to hear in that moment for me to know that the God who had been with me up until this point hadn't left me, hadn't lost me. But he had also, then you'd also said some other crazy stuff. Like, 
like identity in Christ that's like confirmed and that like, why am I like, I don't know. I, f- I forget like some of the stuff you dropped some bombs and we're like on the way, drive into the park to meet family. Cause we're going to go canoeing and I don't have a job. Like <laughs> I'm going to go out and have a good festive afternoon. Just, you know, cause everything was good. Right. Cause I want to keep the facade. Everything's good. But I'm on the phone with Richard and he's like, yeah, man, like yeah, your job's not your provider. Like God's actually your provider. He's like, yeah, you don't have to like resent your employer for firing you because like he's never been in the position to provide for you. And I'm like, yeah, like, duh. He's just obviously, the channel, right? I'm like, yeah, but like, up until this point. he's the, he's the, your job is just the channel that God is using to provide for you, but he's the provider. Yeah. yeah. He's I, the provider. And I, we had that conversation. You remember that conversation? I think Natalie and that, I think Natalie was like, we need to talk to Elias. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, he lost mm-hmm. his job. I was like, oh. And I think we were in the back seat together. We were, we, did we FaceTime you guys? This is not important. Maybe. It's just Isn't like that, a memory. You were, you were like riding with your parents, I think. Yeah. And yeah, you guys were in the backseat. You're going to the airport or something. I forget like what yeah. the details were. Maybe, maybe, maybe we FaceTime. Like you guys were just like firing. And like, to be honest, like my sister had sent me texts like over the last like six months. Like she sent, like we have this group family text mm-hmm. and Natalie was like talking crazy faith. <laughs> like I was like, like who, what? Like, Natalie, you're like quoting scripture and like declaring yourself free. In, like, and I was just like, oh, yeah, cool, man. Like, yeah, like, yeah, like you found like genuine faith. Like, this is pretty cool. And I remember just, I remember up until that point, I was like, I really hadn't like really reached out to Nat or had any like real one on one conversations with her. We just kind of, I'd seen these things a few times where she just encouraged our, fam- our my brothers and sisters. Like, right. We just, we, we share these things with each other and she would send these things. And I was like, Whoa, like things that like in the past, I'd be like, Oh, you know, like, yeah, like that's a good scripture to claim today. But like stuff that Nat would send, I'd be like, what book she reading? Yeah. Like, you know, like, <laughs> That's deep. Like stuff that would just like that'd make me think. And um and then you guys talked to me and then you invited me to this Bible study. And... Wait, what what do you remember what was some of the stuff that we said that that you were like that threw you off at all? Um I couldn't answer what my relationship to sin was. And that got my head spinning right because if i couldn't tell you what my relationship to sin was confidently then i was like wait a minute like i knew i was forgiven for every sin that i had confessed for right at that point that's what i was right right so you you get what i'm saying you got the context like what i I knew i was forgiven like i had no doubt i was forgiven um but like when you said freedom from sin, I was like, mm, hmm, you had my attention. <laughs> because up until this point, I was 
I was a slave to something other than righteousness. Where's right? That? Like, and, and hearing freedom spoke about in a personal and like, I'm living it out. You can too. I was like, tell me more hmm. because I was, the soil had been cultivated, man. Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't really understand how cultivated it was, but I was fed up with the chains Hmm. of looking out for myself constantly. Like you said, you pointed out a hundred percent. Like I, I'd been burned enough that I knew where to stop people from coming in. I'd burned too many times. I felt like I'd been personally burned by God. Right. So I knew the line, right? And I, that's tough, dude. That's a hard life. It's a hard life to constantly evaluate other people's um, motives in interacting with you to make sure they don't get too close so that they could potentially hurt you. Mm-hmm. That's exhausting, right? But I, I've become pretty effective, pretty efficient of like, ah, oh, you're getting close. Push you away, mm-hmm. right? I, and uh, so I, I think that was at, I was at that point, but like I was willing to hear something different because I was getting worn out. Hmm. I was getting tired. Yeah. So, um, so we go, we go to what yeah. a Bible study. Had we just started the LRTs on, on zoom? Is, is that when that had happened? Yeah. So yeah. How, so like, yeah. um, How'd that hit you? I'm all, I'm all about Bible knowledge, right? Like I value my religious experience on being able to pick up this book that's got 66 authors over 2,000 years of time that all somehow agree together. Like I, I know my Bible mm-hmm. and I don't know my Bible gets exposed <laughs> right I, and it wasn't like and it was like so this guy is talking about these and i'm taking like notes ferociously because i'm about because i'm like i can argue so like my value in interacting in religious ideas is argument right if my argument beats yours you have to submit to mine and I, my argument was that jesus loves you right and you have to submit to my argument that jesus loves you like up until that point but like I was hearing people talk about scripture as not like this secondary tool to use an argument, but as a personal declaration of who they were. And I'm over here like, no, no, no. Like that's what we will become one day. You guys are just confused (laughs) that one day we're going to be those things that that's, that's what we have. That's the great hope, right? Like that's what we're hoping for. Just a little, a little, and then like, but like, no, no, no. They're like, they're declaring these things over their life, and I'm like, I, where does it say it? And they're like, quote a verse that I'm kind of familiar with, and I go and I look, and I'm like, oh, the like, the adverbs and the verbs around this declaration are like have been or we are or like you are like he has perfected for all time like. Mm-hmm. That has an ED at the end of it, and it means that it's done. And I'm like, mm. 
I'm getting tripped up on adverbs and therefores and like these people are reading the Bible and they're talking about something that Christ is in them that I didn't believe he was in me. Freedom from sin, having received forgiveness, like not just like one time forgiveness, but forgiveness for sin. They were talking about like, um, oh man, some crazy things. Like, oh, like Second Corinthians 5.16, where like they no longer had to position anybody in the flesh, which I felt like I had gotten extremely efficient in doing. Like I can position you in like your most cynical way so that I can evaluate what kind of relationship we can get in. I like, I thought I was good at it, man. Mercy. Like I thought that was a value because like, that's how I was protecting myself. You like, you, I just said it like. But it's like, oh yeah, I no longer have to position anybody else in the flesh, like as I once positioned Christ. And like that one really hits me because I'm like, dude, I had cynicism toward God because I thought he was selfishly looking out for himself and using me Mercy. in my past. Mercy. Right? I no longer have to look at Christ through the flesh and I don't have to look at anybody else through the flesh. And these people are saying that this is their existence currently. And I'm like, listen. Did you read the next verse? Yeah, but... <laughs> Therefore, if anyone, yeah, I probably read Yeah, he is a new Christ. He's a new, he's a new creator. Behold, the new has come. New has come. Yeah, yeah, it hadn't come for me yet, or I hadn't realized it was there. Like it's been there the whole time. Now I understand that. Like, but like I'm hearing all these things, and we're going through this Bible study. We go through it one time, and I'm like looking at Gab, and I'm like, this stuff's checking out. Like the only thing that I got tripped up on was Roman seven being past tense, Paul, not present tense, Paul. That was the one thing that really tripped me up. I was like, but I knew, I knew that if I could find the solution to Roman seven, that the rest of this stuff lined up. Right. But that was for me, like, that was like, so how did you find it? I got to figure it out. Did you end up finding it? I started looking at Yeah, man, I looked uh, It's Yeah, I did. It was awesome. I can tell you about it. But Yeah, yeah. why why not tell me about it's it? It's beautiful. Because Romans 7 will Yo. always be a chapter that uh, <laughs> uh one day when I fully tell my story on on the pod, Romans 7 plays a huge part in it. But I'm interested to hear how uh, you came to your conclusion about Paul being in the flesh in Romans 7, 14 um, to 25, or him being in the spirit in Romans 7, 14 to 25. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's going on with Paul in verse se- chapter 7? I hope I can do this justice. It's like 11 o'clock at night right now, or like almost midnight. Um, but I hope I can do this justice. So the interaction between sin and the law and me, those three things, like uh-huh. what was going on with those three things? So like, I learned that the law couldn't bring life to me. Hmm. Right. I learned, I learned through a lot of other scriptures that Christ had accomplished for me what the law could never do. He could, the law could never bring life to me. Um, so I learned that my relationship to the law 
was one that I was looking at a law that was fulfilled and not one that was to me an expectation anymore. It wasn't thou shalt not. It was, it wasn't expectations toward me. It was stuff that in Christ I could expect the Holy spirit to accomplish in me those things because he's, because, because I saw that the spirit of the law had been written onto my new heart, Hmm. right? The spirit that wrote the law and had given these contexts lived in me. So I realized that my relationship to the law wasn't one of you're not good enough and you're not a a mistake waiting to happen, but in Christ it's accomplished. He came to fulfill it. Right. So that was number one. My relationship to the law was figured out. Mm -hmm. So when Paul was talking about like, I was once alive apart from the law, but the law came and I died. I was like, Oh y'all, yo, I get that. Like you and me, like we're on the same page because I, one time I was like, I was living wild now, like I was doing me. And then the law comes along and says, Oh yeah, you can't sustain that lifestyle because it's built on sin. Right. And the law comes and I, I, there wasn't any life in it anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I also saw that now I, I, I thought, I thought in the past, like, I just got to keep this law, but I can utilize grace to keep this law. That was what the lie I was believing. But I realized that I, Jesus kept it perfect, mm. not a blemish. Mm. Perfect. And what's true about him is true about me. And Adam one, Adam two, he gifts me obedience. Like I'm an Adam two and I have obedience, like not just okay obedience, but I have obedience in Christ. Mm. And I was like, all right, that makes sense. What about, th- what about sin though? Right. So there's this story that I tell that kind of makes me understand this. And it's something that was told to me of a situation that somebody said they like, I was interacting with this person and they were just being mean and nasty toward me, right? They were just being mean and like just intentionally. And I'm sitting over here like thinking like, man, I could tell you off right now. I could really, and this is somebody that like, whose opinion I valued, who's close Mm -hmm. to me. And like, I could just tell you off right now, but but I'm going to hold my tongue and I'm going to love you through it. But man, what's really what I'm going to hide who I really am towards you so that you don't have to see who I really am. And I'm just going to love you through this and praise God because I can love you and hide my true feelings towards you under love. Hmm. All the time considering myself to be all those nasty things that I wanted to say. Hmm. Right. So I I saw that I identified more with the thing that I didn't want to be than the thing that 99% of the time was more than that was shown in my life. Hmm. Right? 99% of the time I was identifying with the 1%. I was thinking that I was quenching something that was me in order to show something that I wasn't, but I hoped to be. Mercy. And then in Romans 7, Paul's like, it wasn't me, it was sin in me. And sin took opportunity because the law was there to work all kind of evil in me. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, yo. 
unfair expectations were thrown on me that I couldn't add up to. And I identified with this thing, but he's over here saying, no, it's actually something. There's a, there's a power that wants you to betray who you are. And I'm like, obviously Romans seven can't be the renewed life, Paul, because he's dead to sin. And if he's dead to sin, then he's talking about a time when sin was able to leverage in his life, something that wasn't him that would demonstrate things that came out of him, but he's dead to it. Right. In verse six and in chapter six, and then beginning of chapter seven, he's been released from it. All right. I, am I, am I, yeah. are you following? Yeah. The, I did not. What are, you thinking? what are you thinking? I did not understand Romans seven when I first started walking in this. I, I read Romans six. Yeah. Like, I think we all start with what's your relationship to sin. So I read Romans six mm-hmm. and then this weekend in Nebraska, one time I asked Jonathan, I was like, can you explain to me? this Romans chapter seven and he's like uh read verse five of seven and in verse five yeah paul's talking about well in the flesh he says da 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 and he's like okay now go read romans eight nine i was like okay and i turned the page over in the bible and it says you are not in the flesh you are in the spirit and so he's like so he's talking about a guy in the flesh back then, but that's not you. You're in the spirit. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. And it just clicked that this wasn't our lives in the spirit. And we are in the spirit. So it wasn't Paul's life in the spirit because he was in the spirit. So you're looking at Gabby and you're just like, this is adding up. The math is adding up on this. Um, after the first week, did you know, like, yo, this this mm-hmm. is making a lot of sense? What did it did it take after? Because I feel like you went to every single one of them. Did it did it take after the second week to like? I didn't miss like your I didn't miss a night. You didn't yeah, miss the second week. So your life starts to yo, change. I missed one night. Uh, my life starts to change because I'm seeing an identity that I had never thought possible before, but I had, I so like I had been exposed to an identity that would be mine one day, but that I'm starting to see as mine. And they do this thing in this thing called LRT um, about this guy in Matthew 18 mm-hmm. who, whose life isn't changed by forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. He experiences forgiveness, but when he experiences forgiveness, his, his, what he says, uh, like contradicts, like, uh, he thinks he can still repay his debt. That's what I'm trying to get. Like he thinks he can still, he's like, give me enough time and I will repay this debt. Right. And the guy's like, you're forgiven. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, they do this little breakout thing and like, something Jonathan had said was like, you are free from living at the, uh, what would he say? Um, you're free from living at the expense of others. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, whoa. Free from what? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Living at the expense of others. And I and it hit me that I never had accepted forgiveness and had thought that I had to like I had to leverage everything in my life to make me feel good. Like every relationship, like I came under conviction and it wasn't conviction with shame. And it was the first time I'd ever come under conviction and I wasn't covered with like poor man that I am, hmm. right? Because I, I, it, was, it was a conviction that I was like, whoa, like I'm being called into freedom, not being called into work harder so you'll do better. Hmm. Right. I don't know. I, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever heard that, but like, it was the first time that like, Hey, Elias, this isn't the way I want you to live. This isn't the way I designed you to live. You're not on your own to accomplish this. I've accomplished this for you. Now just live in it. Hmm. And like, I'm talking, I forget which breakout room I was like, maybe I was, um, Oh, I forget which one I was in. I don't know. I forget who I was with, but like he, um, he broke it down a little bit more and I was like, yeah, no, like, and I just got on there. Like I turned, I turned on my mic and I was like, listen, I am free from living at the expense from of others. Hmm. And like, as I said, it, I believed it like, like, like faith meets grace that had always been there for me, but grace, my fit, my faith hadn't grabbed onto it. Christ in that moment authored for me a faith that laid hold of the grace of his perfect life for me that doesn't look at others as leveraging tools. Hmm. And I was free. Like from, like, I know, I now no longer have to weigh every relationship as what can I gain? If you have to, if you like, if your listeners or whatever, whoever's on this podcast, if you feel like any relationship in your life has a a hint of what can I gain from this relationship that that makes you feel like you have to meter how much you give to the relationship, right? Like if you feel like you have to you have to only give a little bit to this person because really they they can't really help you too much, but you can give a lot to this person because they promised to help you. That's not the way that's not life. Mercy. Right. Life for me at that moment was shown to me that I can give all to anyone and ask for nothing in return because Jesus gave everything for me. When I said, I'm not giving you anything. Mercy. And then he kept on giving it. Right? Like he didn't just do it once. Like he like oh man, like oh this was just the truth that came to me the other night, but like we received the will of God, right? And I'm going to call out a little caveat here. But like we received the will of God. And I always thought the will was like this this majestic like God's destiny for your life. No, it's like it's the will and testament, the inheritance of God, right? In in, in uh, Hebrews nine, that's where I found it. But like he says, he gives us the will. Here he wrote the will, right? He wrote the will to give you a life of freedom. 
And the only way for this will to be released is that the one who wrote the will has to die. Right? Hmm. So Jesus writes the will that he wants to give you a life of freedom. And then he dies to be able to release the will, our inheritance to us. But then he comes back to life and now he ministers our inheritance to us as being the author, the re- the rectifier of this will. So it's no longer for me, like the will isn't like God's will isn't this mystify, mystical thing. It's all the crazy things the New Testament says about me that is my inheritance. And Jesus is ministering to me my inheritance. Mercy. Crazy, right? Crazy. <laughs> Absolutely insane. But in that, like everything that is said of Jesus is true about me. And I can say that without feeling like a lightning bolt's going to hit me, right? Well, John said So it. are we. Hey, that's a good point. <laughs> Yo, John said like, and like, I don't know, like, and I get it. I, and, you know, I'm, I think as I grow in this, I'm able to understand a little bit better why that sounds so self-righteous, right? Because right if you're if you're looking at me through the flesh and i say everything that jesus that's true about jesus is true about me and you don't feel like you're worthy of anything that jesus is then of course anybody who comes along and says that they're worthy of what jesus should receive sounds completely self-righteous because you don't believe that you're worthy of it either right but if you would for 2 seconds look at the cross and look at the heart of god on the cross you would see your value and you would realize that you're not only worthy of it, but you're the perfect masterpiece to receive every heavenly blessing and to manifest his life to the world. Nobody else can do it like you can. Nobody, right? But we have to believe that he, that like that we're worthy of it, that we're like, we're valuable. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't really know how to say it. Like, we might have to understand. What do you think? What? 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 what you... That before the foundation of the world, he had set us apart to be mm-hmm. holy and blameless before him, and in love, he predestined us for adoption mm. to himself through Jesus, mm. according to the purpose of his will. We might have to see that our value was put in before Adam ate the fruit. Mm. And that is our destiny to be restored. And God's will Mm -hmm. is that that has happened, that that happens and it has happened. So we are living in God's perfect will for our lives because we believe that Jesus is the son of God. And because we believe that Jesus is the son of God, everything that's true about him is true about us. And so we've been on second Corinthians chapter five. If we go all the way to verse 21, just four verses down from being a new creation, he says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. And so, but we never, we never saw ourselves that way because it, it hasn't Mm-mm. really been preached that way. We, we have been set up to believe something else. 
Am I wrong? So no, like, so how, how do I accept that? How did I personally, so how did Elias Groft, how did he say, how did he go from like, it just being something that was said about me and that it was becoming something that was me. Mm-hmm. There's this thing called secret place. Um, and I told Rich that I was going to get a little like PG 13 a little <laughs> bit today because I can't, I can't tell my story without sharing how the intimacy between my wife and I has been completely set free. And I think it ties in really good with where we're at in this. There's this place, this thing called secret place where Jesus in the new Testament promises that God promises that he's going to be there to meet with you. And it's where intimacy happens, right? It's like the most holy place, right? It's like the the sanctuary of God. It's like um, it's like when when David was talking, like the secret place. He hides my soul in the secret place. So the secret place, you go there, and he meets you. And it's not like some like mystifiable like he doesn't come to you in an apparition. Maybe he might. Don't don't let me don't let me write off God at all, right? Mm-hmm. So secret place, right? My wife and I had a lot of baggage in our marriage that was all built up because of these expectations we had of each other. And we were never able to celebrate our intimacy together. Hmm. Celebrate our intimacy together. Right. It was never a celebration. It was always me trying to fulfill something that... I was holding on to from like past sexual experiences because I knew that there's somewhere and like all those drug induced moments of like that there was something like magical there. Right. And I had this picture in my mind, like there's intimacy and my wife and I, we had never really experienced intimacy. We had of a child, so I'm not saying like, Right, <laughs> but like, we, there was always baggage that came into the marital bed. Yeah. Always. Huh. Am I good enough? Am I? Is he really? Is 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 she satisfied with me? Huh. Have I done enough? Have I fulfilled my side of the bargain. So, like, it was always it was a burden to each one of us. Mercy. Like we did the thing because it felt good and she knew that it like took an edge off of me and I was a better, I was like, I was more relaxed and I was a better husband. We did the thing because we knew it was what marriage should be. But in our own, both in our own ways, we've been set free from expectation. Like I don't wake up needing my wife's love anymore. <laughs> Like, I don't wake up. Oh, it's awesome. Like, I don't wake up and I'm like, I need you to love me. No, like I wake up perfectly loved by my heavenly father. Perfectly loved. My heart isn't broken or incomplete needing somebody else to fulfill it. Right. And we both separately know this for ourselves and not just know it. 
but intimately have knowledge of being loved by the Father. So our marriage isn't one where like, I got to receive love to become love. Hmm. Nah. Not anymore. I could love her if she kicked me in the face right now, right? Because it doesn't come from me. Like like I told you earlier, I don't work anymore. I don't love anymore, right? Christ loves through me. Hmm. Christ is literally in loving every person because I've gone to I've gone to the secret place with no baggage. I know that like when we're talking like sanctuary language, I can sit in the most holy place in a chair that is mine and I'm worthy to sit in it and I can have intimate relationship with God with no baggage. I can be completely stripped naked, spiritually, physically speaking, in front of God, and he's not ashamed of me. He's not disappointed. He's not saying you're not good enough. He's just speaking over me my true identity in the secret place. So my wife and I have both experienced that, right? We know who we are, and we know that we don't have to be like each other's love tank filler, right? That's not us anymore. So when it comes to us celebrating our marriage, it's never been better. <laughs> because, because it, but it's not about like the, like the, the feeling anymore. Like we come together because our hearts are full of love for one another. Like we, we've been brought together in marriage because Christ ordained the two of us to be each other's like target of love. Like I love her first, like Christ loves me and I love God, but man, I love her first. And she is like, she gets the best of me and I get the best of her and I trust her heart of love toward me. So when we come together Man, that baggage that used to be there of expectations of like, am I good enough? It's not even a whisper anymore. It's not even a, it's not a crutch to what it used to be. And we celebrate our marriage together. And it's beautiful, man. It is just, I don't know. You'd have to talk to her. I don't even know if she'd even. Oh, that's, that's nah, that's, she'd say the same thing I was saying. different, bro. That's different. That's. That sounds like what he created it for, man. It sounds like exactly what he created it for. And it's been yeah. perverted by the enemy to be selfishness when it was created for selflessness. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So you were alive. You went from death to life. And then, then you got freedom. And now you're free, free. Your life's different, bro. I'm as free as Jesus is free. You're as yeah. free as Jesus is free. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go, man. Do people, I don't know how to say it. Do people look at you weird, bro? Do people, like, what? All all the time like people like 
You know, I used to be like in my interactions with other people and talking about spiritual spiritual things, I was always like, oh, I got to have a good argument because they could bring up something that like, no, but not anymore. Like, like, so, like somebody comes to me, came up to me the other day at work and was like, hey, like I got this really troubling patient. You want to spread some, you want to like get into some oozy gossip? And I was like, no. And so like they just kept on talking even though I said no. And they're like, you mean you don't have anything that you would like, like if, if you could, you wouldn't, you don't have something you'd say to her? And I was like, nope. Like this lady is, this lady's got some baggage. But like I got nothing negative to say to her. And that's true. Like, I don't have to fake it anymore. I don't have to say what I should say. Like, so for the longest time, I thought that I was putting on a face, right? I was putting on a facade. And I've realized that that's actually me. Like the things that, like my best foot going forward wasn't a faker. Like that was actually me in Christ. That was me. And I was, but but I was believing that the 1% was me instead of the 99% that is me. Man alive. Ah, man. So as we wrap this up. Isn't it crazy? No, man. It's like my heart is filled. You've ministered to me, man. Uh, As we wrap this up, if anyone's listening to this and they're just like, I want what he's having. Like, I want, I I want to be free. What do I got to do? What would you say to that person? When you try to earn a gift, it becomes a debt. Hmm. So I read this verse in um, in Romans four, and it it says that in probably more eloquent language than I'm saying it. But if we try to earn a gift, it becomes a debt. So stop if, earning. If this gift that God is what stop earning is that what you're saying? Well. Stop working to receive a gift. Like, if you're working to receive a gift, you're you're going to feel indebted. Hmm. It it's amazing, but a, a gift can become a, a debt to you because you feel like you have to earn it. So, somebody who's hearing this, like, know that you don't have to work to earn the gift that God has given to you. And, and the reason, the reason you have all these, like these contradictions in yeah, buts is because you feel like it's, you're indebted to God and you're not because it's a gift. Nothing you earned, nothing you had to be good enough to receive. It's a gift. It's Christmas time. Open the present, put the robe of white righteousness on and wear it because it's tailored for you, right? 
And the one who, who wrapped it up, who knew your perfect size and your perfect shape, he tailored it just for you. It fits perfectly. Put it on. Don't leave it in the closet anymore. Don't say one day I'll wear that to the big ball. No, like wear it every day because it's yours and it's been given to you. Just put it on. So put on Christ's righteousness. What's, uh, this is my last question. What is your, uh, what's the level of righteousness that you're at then? Is there, is there, are there levels of righteousness? I think Christ is righteous. I am in Christ and I am the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. I don't think it's a ladder we're climbing. Like we're there. Let's go. Yo, can I share one more thing? Do it. Yo, so like there's this song by Hillsong that's, um, that's, uh, and this is like, this is a shout out to anybody who's like a mountaineer or like, uh, try, likes to climb mountains, have, has ever experienced summit fever. So I'll give one little last illustration for what's changed in my life. But there's a song out by Hillsong that's, um, it's called Highlands, right? The Song of Ascent, yeah. right? And it talks about, and I, I could, like, I hold, like, I'm not saying braggingly, but just kind of give a context. I hold some records for for running, right? I, I currently hold some. And if God was on a mountain that I had to climb to get to him, I would, right? Mm-hmm. There's no mountain I wouldn't climb. So there's this thing that happens for people who have that mindset that I'm going to get to the summit at any cost. And it's called summit fever, right? And when summit fever hits you, it's, it's this like, I will do whatever it takes to get to this, to the summit. And most of the time it's when there's decreased oxygen flowing to your brain. So this is really practical. Like you're going up the mountain and like you're going through things you shouldn't be going through, but you're just like dead set. I'm getting to the summit. I'm getting there. And people make dumb, stupid decisions with it, like risk the life of their friends, the people they're, they're climbing this mountain with. They ignore turnaround times. They put themselves in exposed situations and they lose their life because they're so determined to get to the summit that they risk logic, right? I used to live a spiritual life of summit fever, Right? I was so determined to get there that I was willing to risk anything. I was willing to leverage anything in my life, any relationship, any item that grace had extended toward me, any fruit of the spirit. I was willing to leverage it to get to the mountain, top of the mountain. But I'm already on the summit, baby. (laughs) In Jesus Christ. I am on the summit. I am there. My feet have hit the highest point that the journey can take me in Christ. He is my summit. He, I, I'm there in him. I have no need to live in summit fever anymore. I don't have to ignore the needs of others in order to accomplish my goal. Because I'm already on the summit. I'm already at the top. I don't have to live at the advantage, to take advantage of anybody else any longer. 
Because man, go go listen to that song, right? Go listen to that song. Like we he is the summit where our heart is. And like I'm free from summit fever, man. Like I've been there. I am there in Christ. It's awesome. But yeah. That's the last thing I'd say. That'll preach, bro. That will preach. No, man. Like my heart is smiling just to hear this testimony. And yeah, I'm sure we could talk for another three hours, but we got to let this podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, bro. I love you, man. I love. Can I say a word of prayer? Pray it, bro. Pray it out. Yeah, man. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for Rich's podcast that you've blessed him with, Lord. Uh, you've blessed it. Like, it's 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 yours. And I just thank you so much. You've allowed us to share our stories, your story. Um, Lord, the people who are listening, I just pray a special blessing on them, Lord. Let them know who they are. You're, you're already listening. They're, they're, they're already hearing these things, Lord. Silence the lies and put them to death. In Jesus' name, we just thank you. Amen. Love you, man. Love you, bro.
finna go shoot. Can't stop till we make it to the moon. It's too late, can't stop it, it's a boom. No, I cannot wait till you approve. I got people with me on the other side. Spirit on me too bright, I see they tryna ride. Coming out for the night, yeah, it's that come alive. Coming out for the fight, yeah, we stay alive. We stay alive, ayy. Hey.